Hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the book of Deuteronomy, reading from the 18th chapter, verses 14 through 19. For these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners, but as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet." Like you from among your brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command them. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him to bring it alive. Our dear Lord, as we continue to bow down before you in awe of your transcendent majesty, of your holiness, and realizing that you made all that there is, not just the little small bubble that we live in, but the vastness of the universe with the power of your will. By a word, you made all things out of nothing. You are the absolute, sovereign, powerful, providential, covenantal God of all creation. And we praise you and we worship you. But we are so amazed that you are also a God who loves us, knows the number of hairs that are on our head, wants to be in our midst, wants relationship and reconciliation with even the likes of us. Even those who have fallen away from you. Even those who are defined by our sinfulness and our fallenness. Thank you, dear Lord, as we continue to talk of your holiness, but also to talk of your eminence and your great love that drove that eminence, especially in the greatest manifestation, the advent of your Son, Jesus Christ, who we even this week celebrate the, the advent, the coming of. We'll give you the glory for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As I have been sort of mentioning over the, um, the, as we were preparing for this message, um, over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about the holiness of God. In fact, it's kind of taken the form of, of a little mini-series. I've got a couple of more segments, and then in the new year, we'll start to look at the Gospel of Luke. But we've been talking about things like God's sovereignty and His eternal decree. We've been talking about His providence and the covenantal nature of God. And in, especially in the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about the the transcendence of God. That means that he is above and outside of his creation, that he is holy and majestic and unapproachable and absolutely unknowable unless he reveals himself to us. But at the same time, we have talked about his extraordinary eminence and that is his desire to be in the midst of his people, a compassionate, loving, merciful desire to have relationship with us, to be reconciled with fallen sinners. And we've kind of focused more on the transcendence of God. And frankly, that's because that's what we need to focus on, because that's where we as a modern church, we tend to forget that he is holy. We've watered him down. We've made him one of us. We have attributed too many human attributes to God. And we seem to have forgotten that he is absolutely perfect in his holiness. But this morning we're going to shift gears just a wee bit. We're going to begin to talk, we're never going to forget that holiness, but we're going to start to talk a little bit more about his eminence leading up 
to the greatest manifestation of that eminence, which is the, 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 the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, we've talked about this in several different ways already. We've talked about the motivation of his eminence. And the motivation of his eminence was his great love for his people. We've talked about the objective of that eminence was restoration. It was to, once again, have relationship, redemption of his fallen creation that he made in his image. We've also talked about the great expression of that eminence, which we'll just get to today, which is the advent of his son, Jesus Christ. But this morning, what I want to do is I really want to specifically get into the vehicle of his eminence. And the vehicle as it is established here in our text, and as pretty much it stretched from the time of Moses to the time of John the Baptist, right up to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And and that is going to be the voice of God as it is given through uh, his prophets. And and I'll explain that in just a moment. Now, we're in the book of Deuteronomy. And I kind of explained to you last week a little bit that the book of Deuteronomy is for the most part an extended sermon by Moses. Moses who is not going to be able to go into the promised land. Moses who is preparing the people for that possession of the land, knowing that they're going to meet all kinds of of challenges, and he wants them to understand their relationship with God towards that end. Now, we we talked about, last week, if, if you were here, we talked about the fact that God had established that these people were holy to him, set aside for him, that they were his private, his treasured possessions and that out of all the peoples on earth God had chosen them to be his people now what we talked about was and that just an, an amazing love that that manifests that God is not only zealous in his love for us but he is also jealous in that love infinitely jealous and infinitely zealous and that means he's not going to stand by and abide his people rejecting him or coveting other things than him or worshiping other gods than him now as far as that love was concerned we talked about it in purely human terms as that which motivated his eminence that his love was a love that was grounded in his holiness it was a holy love, a zealous and a jealous love. But it also drove his eminence because God has this burning desire to be Emmanuel, to be in the midst of his people. And so what we are going to see as we look towards his eminence is indeed that idea that God in his holiness wants to be eminent. Now, we've looked at a lot of principles over the last couple of weeks, but one that just keeps on coming up over and over again, and I want you to keep it in mind this morning, is that God's holiness in no way is diminished by his eminence. He does not, in the slightest bit, stop becoming transcendent when he's eminent, okay? That, that he is still holy. His love is holy. His grace is holy. And we're going to see this morning, his words are holy. He does not uh, diminish at all just because he wants to be in the midst of his people and communicate with them. Now... We've been talking, we've already seen several examples actually of that eminence now as we sort of change our focus from the holiness. I don't want you to forget the holiness, but we are going to sort of switch gears a little bit because when we get to Jesus, that's the greatest manifestation of his eminence that ever was. But we've already seen some examples of that eminence. We saw the burning bush with Moses and we talked about that was both the transcendence and the eminence of God. The desire to be with his people. We saw the column of cloud by day and fire. The pillar of fire by night that was leading the children of Israel. That was a theophany also representing the eminence of God. But the most extraordinary example that we have studied so far, and really one of the culminations of our study, was when the children of Israel gathered at the foot of Mount Horeb, which 
is also Mount Sinai, same mountain. But they gathered there as the first gathering, the first assembly of God's people to worship him. That was the whole purpose all along of this nation coming out into the desert. That was to worship. But what we saw there was an extraordinary example of both his transcendence and his eminence. Let me read to you. Um, we're going to be reading a lot of scripture. Uh, all of these references are in your bulletin if I don't um, specifically state them. But let me go ahead and reread for you from Exodus 19 that extraordinary encounter that the children of Israel had with God at Mount Sinai. It goes like this On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain, remembering they couldn't even touch the mountain because of the holiness of God that had descended on the top of it. Verse 18. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly and as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up what an extraordinary picture of his transcendence this is the holy God coming down the mountain shakes and it is so holy that no one can even touch the the base of the mountain. But I also want you to see that as frightening as that is, it is also a manifestation of his eminence. Because after all, God condescended to even come to the mountain at all. And, And the power and the glory that he is showing is certainly veiled because he holds the universe in his hands. And so therefore, even though it was shaking the mountains and fire and smoke and thunder and trumpet blast are everywhere, it is a manifestation of the eminence of God. Now, Here's what I want you to remember. I want you to remember how the children of Israel, the assembly, how they reacted to this condescension of God. This is out of the 20th chapter of Exodus. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. I mean, they probably backed up halfway to the Red Sea because they're so frightened of of the, the God that came down on the mountain. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. So terrified were they, and this is important for this morning, so terrified were they of the transcendent holiness of God when he came down and spoke to them that they begged Moses, don't ever let God speak to us again. Now, later on in our text, God's going to agree with that. We're going to see that he says, yeah, that was exactly the right approach. They shouldn't be meeting with me face to face. But we begin to butt up against a little bit of a dilemma, okay? Not a little bit, a lot. Not a dilemma to God, but a dilemma as far as the text is concerned. Because the people are scared to death. They don't want God to speak to them. But Moses now, as we fast forward to Deuteronomy, is at the end of his life. Moses is 120 years old. Moses is not going to go into the promised land. Moses is actually sending them off and there's not going to be any Moses. So the question arises, well, if they're scared to death of hearing God speak to them directly and they don't want to have that experience again and they need God to speak to them because they need to dispossess these people and they need to have that alliance, how on earth is God going to continue to speak to the people? That's the Dilemma. Now, with that dilemma in mind, now we can turn our attention to our text. So let's take a look, first of all, at the 14th verse 
um, as we go into this. By the way, let, let me go ahead and mention this. Let me just get this out of the way before we go into the text. I am going to make a presentation this morning that the, the, the office of prophet, and that's what our text is going to speak of, the office of prophet is a continuation of the eminence of God. And I'll explain to that part of it a little bit later. But I also want you to know that in this period from Mount Horeb all the way to Jesus, it's not the only manifestation of the eminence of God because we also have the tent of meeting and the holy of holies and the ark of the covenant and the Aaronic priesthood. God will continue to come down to atone for the sins of the people. That's the Emmanuel principle. We'll see that in the priest later on. We will also see it in the third ecclesiastical office, that of king. But when we're talking now about how God speaks to his people, that's very much soteriological in a sense. That's where salvation and forgiveness occurs in that that, um, uh, that sprinkling of the blood on the mercy seat. But now we're going to talk about how God continues to reveal himself to his people, and he's going to do that through the office of prophet. Well, the first thing that he does is uh, he, he tells the people how not to go about seeking the voice of God. They need to hear from God, okay? They're scared to death of having God speak to them face to face. So Moses is going to tell them this is what you don't do. And this is something repeated throughout the book of Deuteronomy. Look in the 14th verse. For these nations which you are about to dispossess... Listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. And as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. Now, the children of Israel are absolutely unique in all the world. They are the ones that God has chosen to speak to, to give his word to, to speak through the likes of Moses to. The rest of the world is turning to idols and to fortune tellers and necromancers and false prophets and false priests who tell them, I have the word of the Lord for you, but they actually don't. They're satanic in nature, driven by the darkness of the prince of this world. And so therefore, God tells his people right off the bat, the Lord your God will not allow you, won't permit you to speak to me in this way. So Get it straight. This is not the solution to the dilemma. I have another solution that is the right solution, but to turn to some kind of mysticism is definitely not the way that I'm going to allow it. Now, we'll talk about that a wee bit more when we get down to the 19th verse. But I want you to notice that he gives us the solution in the next verse, the 15th verse. Moses speaking in the first person now. Moses telling them what God has said to him. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers it is to him you shall listen. What a great solution. You don't want to hear from God. You want Moses to be the intermediary, the intercessor. So all we have to do is raise up another prophet like Moses. Now, we're going to look at that a little bit deeper in just a moment as we get down to the 18th verse. In fact, when we get to the 18th verse, that's when we're really going to unpack what is being said here. But I want to remind you. That when, when we talk about prophets, when we talk about an Old Testament prophet, it's only in the modern concept of prophets and prophecy that we sort of dictate that that must be a foretelling of the future. That's what prophecy is. That's not what it is in the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophet is someone who says... Thus saith the Lord, someone who speaks the words of God exactly as God is going to specify here and, very importantly, can prove it, can back it up with some kind of a, of a visible manifestation that they indeed are speaking the words of God. Now, when Moses says that, he gives them the solution, but now he's going to back up a wee bit in the 16th verse, and he's going to tell them why, or remind them, actually, of why that solution is necessary. Look in the 16th verse. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire anymore, lest 
I die. Now, we've already talked about that. I read you the passages from Exodus where that happened, where at the time that they were able to actually stand in the presence of this all-powerful holy God, scared them to death. They don't ever want to do that again. So Moses is just reminding them of that when he makes this statement. Now, a couple of things I want to draw out of this. A little bit of a rabbit trail, but not much. We're not going to go down it at all. But if you remember, I've been trying to teach you a Hebrew word that represents the assembly of the people of God. That word is kahal. And that's the word that Moses uses here when he speaks of the day of assembly. That assembly, that is when God's people gathered before his holiness to worship him at Mount Horeb. Now, if you go into the, uh, the, the, the Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, everywhere you see the word kahal, it is translated ekklesia, which is the Greek word from the New Testament that, that describes the New Testament Christian church. Now, I am not among those who wants to draw a a chasm between Old and New Testament. I don't think that Scripture does that. Jesus himself said, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill the law of prophets. So actually, I see that gathering as the primary gathering of the saints of God. Because after all, they are saved by the same blood of Jesus Christ that we are saved by. We have been grafted, if you're a Gentile, grafted into the very root that they now represent. So I go all the way back when I trace the beginnings of the church, not to Pentecost, not to say that there's not a brand new covenant, not to say that it is not uh, done in an amazing way that the old wineskins can't hold the new wine. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that the kahal or the assembly is the foundations of the church. I also want you to notice in this verse twice, actually all through this passage, we have that designation, the Lord your God, Yahweh Elohim, two statements of the absolute transcendence of God with a personal pronoun in between them. It's either the Lord their God, the Lord your God, or the Lord my God. But he is our God. So we see both the transcendence and the eminence of God brought out in that right there. But anyway, look at the 17th verse because the Lord gives his stamp of approval to what Moses has just said. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I agree with you, Moses. That's exactly the way they should have responded. And here's the reason. I gave you special grace to come and stand in my presence. I consecrated you and Aaron and some others to come even and touch the mountain. I consecrated you alone to come and at least to see my backside. Of course, those are all anthropomorphisms. But Moses had a very special place with God. And he says, I haven't consecrated or given them that grace. So therefore, they ought to be afraid. They ought to be terrified at seeing me in in face-to-face face if you will that's of course another anthropomorphism but to be in my presence and so therefore we need another solution and that's why he repeats the solution and brothers and sisters it's a solution that is going to pretty much define the eminence of God for the next 1400 years and it is going to be God speaking through the mouths of his prophets so let's look in the 18th verse where he states that I will raise up for I will raise up for them speaking of the children of Israel a prophet like you from among their brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him Now let's take that last sentence first I will put my words in his mouth If you look in a theological dictionary or you find some treatise where someone has defined eminence, chances are you're not going to see prophecy or prophets listed as a sign or a manifestation of God's eminence. In fact, it's almost always a separate category, talks about the revelation of God. 
But I see this as the words of God, and I see this the way it is presented as being a manifestation of God's eminence, because this is the way that God is going to communicate with his people. Once again, I'm not taking anything away from the priesthood, because that is also a sign of his eminence, eminence or the kingdom that will come later on. I, I'm, I'm not taking those away. But what I am saying is, as God continues to reveal himself, to talk, to his people, he is going to do, throw, do so through the ecclesiastical office of the prophet. And, and, and he says, listen, I'm putting my words in his mouth. Now, brothers and sisters, I, I want you to recognize something. And I told you, don't ever forget the transcendence of God. Don't ever forget his um, holiness. Because it's always there, and in no way is that holiness or that transcendence diminished by his eminence. So just because God puts words in the mouth of a fallen, fallible human being, it does not change the fact that they are still his words. It does not change the fact that they are holy. It doesn't change the fact that they are authoritative. There is little difference except just in the mode of the way God addressed the people on Mount Sinai when he gave them the Ten Commandments and the way that he addresses them through his prophets. It's still the infallible and the holy word of God and it is encapsulated now in the books that the prophets wrote down. And so therefore, that's the reason that I am considering it to be a sign of his eminence. And don't take my word for it. Uh, uh, you know, where we're headed with this is that the ultimate expression of God's eminence is Jesus Christ. Well, here's what the, the, the writer of Hebrews has to say about that. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Well, the Son is the Word, and the Word became flesh, and he became the living Word while he was here, the very radiance of God's glory. And so, therefore, the greatest manifestation of the eminence of God is the Word of God. And so, when he gives that Word through these prophets, the prophets of old, I see it as a sign of his eminence. Well, let's go back to the text, verse 18, and let's kind of take it apart and see what God has to say. Remember, this is now Moses telling you what the actual words of God were. First of all, he says, I will raise up. Okay, make sure you see that, folks. Make sure you recognize that no one decides to be a prophet of God. No one claims or proclaims themselves to be a prophet of God. This is something that God and God alone chooses. He chooses those that he will speak through. I will put my words in their mouth. And woe be unto anyone who says, hey, I'm a... I'm speaking for God, or God said this, or God said that, or I'm a prophet, and they are not. The actual um, um, sanctions against that are very severe, and we'll get to some of those later. But God, in his sovereignty, chooses who his prophets will be. He goes on, and he says that, I will raise up for them a prophet like you. And so he says that he's going to be a prophet, Moses like you. Now, that doesn't mean that he's going to be a Moses clone. It doesn't mean that he will be exactly like Moses because we're going to learn later on there never was a prophet like Moses. And Moses was completely unique in the Old Testament as far as prophets are concerned. But he's going to be like Moses in that God is going to speak to him and that the, the prophet is going to be the one through whom God brings his hope transcendent word so that it can be relayed to the people of God. In that sense, they're going to be just like Moses. But also, brothers and sisters, and here's the important thing about a prophet. Also, he's going to be able to prove it. He's not just going to say, hey, listen, the Lord told me to tell you this. I mean, modern day prophets themselves say, oh, well, I'm right about 15% of the time, but that doesn't matter, you know. Well, the Old Testament tells you it does matter because that's not what prophecy is. Prophecy is one who God has placed the words in his mouth and he speaks those words of 
God. Now Moses could authenticate that. Moses parted the sea and did all kinds of mighty works in the name of God. And so would the prophets who would fill this ecclesiastical office of prophets. Or they would be able to say something from the Lord that was so unbelievably accurate before it happened that you knew that the Lord was speaking through them like Daniel in the second chapter of Daniel when he, he not only interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he told him what the content was. Well, that only comes from God. Those are the ways that a prophet substantiates himself. So Moses, or God says, Moses, I'm going to raise up another prophet like you. And he says, I'm going to raise him up from among your brothers. What that means is that prophets who fill this ecclesiastical office of prophet are going to be Hebrews. They're going to be Israelites. Now, we'll save for another day the question about Balaam and his donkey because it's not clear whether he was a Jew living in Gentile areas or whether he was a Gentile. And he doesn't really fit the, the Old Testament definition of the office of prophet anyway. He's more of a false prophet. And, and just because people are not prophets in this sense doesn't mean that God doesn't speak to people or direct them or tell them speaks to a donkey. He can speak to all kinds of people, you know. But um, it, 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 what it is to say is that all who are going to actually occupy the ecclesiastical office of prophet will be Israelites from among your brothers. Now, some of you may have caught this. I skipped over something, kind of the glaring part of this sentence. And, and that is when God says, I will raise up for them a prophet. He didn't say, I will raise up for them prophets. He said, I will raise up a prophet, singular in both the 18th and the 15th verses. So does that mean God is only calling the one? He's only talking about one prophet? Well, there are a whole bunch of people who think that he is. In fact, people who discount New Testament prophecy think that he's talking about Joshua, or some people think he's talking about Jeremiah. Christians are pretty much convinced that he's talking only about Jesus Christ when he says, I will raise up a prophet. Well, actually, brothers and sisters, there's a nuance of the Hebrew language that I can only tell you about. I used to read Hebrew when I was seminary. Everybody learns to read Hebrew, at least to a degree. I'm losing it over the years. I depend more and more on dictionaries and translations and scholars that I know really know Hebrew and tell me, let me tell you one of those scholars was Calvin Calvin used to preach from a Hebrew Bible my goodness he was that knowledgeable about what Hebrew was and he speaks of the nuance that is here when both Moses and God said I will raise up a prophet singular this is what he said he says we include I'm sorry, we conclude that the expression a prophet is used by Enelage. Now, if you don't know what that phrase means, don't worry, neither do I. Um, it, it, as best as I can describe it, it's kind of like a grammatical quirk. Uh, you know, and in this particular sense, something that is purely, clearly singular is not talking about just the singular. It's talking about a focus on the one, but not just the one. It's talking about the one and the many at the same time. So let me finish what Calvin says. We conclude that the expression a prophet is used by Enelaj for a number of prophets. For it is altogether absurd to restrict it to Joshua or Jeremiah. Not at all more correct is their opinion who apply it strictly to Jesus alone. Now... Let me explain what Calvin is not saying. He's not saying it does not apply to Jesus. What he's saying is that it doesn't apply to Jesus alone. In fact, there is a nuance to the Hebrew language. And it sort of makes the prophet, who is Jesus, the central focus of what God says. But there's almost like there will be 
offspring of that, of, of, of that one focus, almost like you're chopping up a bunch of wood, you know, and, and, and chips are flying all over the place, and then you could come along and you could pick up one of those chips and do a DNA study on it, and you can realize, oh, that chip is from that stump, okay? That's where it came from. That's the association that is being made. So basically, the nuance of the text is this. Yes, God is talking about his son, Jesus Christ, as the prophet. But what he is saying is that there are going to be many other prophets in between that. And they're all going to be of the mold of the prophet, but they're not going to be just like the prophet. And what is even more interesting is they will be of the same mold, so they will tell us about the prophet. Now, of course, they're going to have some local and some current events to talk about. They're going to talk about my anger. They're going to talk about the different sins that people do at the time, but their focus, their ultimate in discussion is on the prophet. They're the ones that are going to, for the next 1,400 years, tell you my imminent revelation about the ultimate imminent manifestation, which is going to be Jesus. Between Mount Horeb and the coming of Jesus Christ, we're going to have a whole bunch of chips off the old block, but each one of those chips is going to tell you and point to, ultimately, the prophet that I am bringing, who will ultimately tell you more about me than anyone else. Now, We're actually going to sort of walk through that. So don't worry if you don't completely understand that. But what we are going to see is the most extravagant revelation and redemption that God has brought about literally from the dawn of time until the advent of his son Jesus Christ, which we are going to celebrate later on. But before we get there, let's finish up this last verse Because it is a strong uh, warning to, to listen to the words of the prophet when he speaks. This is what he said. And whoever will not listen to my words. Notice he says my words. Not just the words that he speaks. But whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name. I myself will require it of him. What does he mean by require it of him? Well, Peter uses this. He makes a great discussion of this in the third chapter of Acts in his second sermon. And here's what Peter says about it. And it's not really funny. And it shall be be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet will be destroyed from the people. In other words, there is a severe sanction if you do not listen to the words that God has given you through the mouths of his prophet. Most Christians don't even open it up. Don't read it. Don't have any idea what it says. And yet they call themselves Christians. And God gives a real stern warning here about what will happen if you don't listen to my words. And then later on in the chapter, he talks about, well, I'm also going to warn you about listening to the wrong words. I only want you to listen to my prophets. I don't want you to listen to all these necromancers and fortune tellers and false prophets out there. He says this in the 20th verse, But the prophet who presumes to speak a word from in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. I tremble when I hear some of the things that are thrown around today about God said this, and God said that. I'm a prophet of God the Most High. And he said, you need to support my ministry. I tremble for them because there are such severe sanctions. And you know something? It's not only those guys on TV who say that. I hear it all the time, even within this church. I've heard it multiple times. People say, well, God told me this. God spoke to me, or he gave me a vision. And I know what you mean, so I don't necessarily jump on you. I know that's a vernacular, but be careful, folks. Be careful if you start saying, God told me to do this, or God told me to tell you this. Okay, yes, phrase it differently. I was reading the word, and the Spirit illuminated me, and this is what the word says. Because that is where his prophets wrote it down, not in your head. You get illuminated because the Holy Spirit brings it to your attention. So be careful by the way that 
You say, God gave me a vision, or God said this, or God spoke to me. Because you're actually saying that you're a prophet, and that's the dangerous thing to do. Well, anyway, I want to step back just a little bit now and put this into its perspective. And then I want to sort of see what Moses is talking about just a little bit. Very, we don't have time to do it into any detail. But the children of Israel, God's people, as they worship before God in Mount Horeb, have said, this is too terrible. It's too horrifying for us. We need God to speak to us through another means. And God here says, I am going to speak to you now through the ecclesiastical office of prophet. Okay, I am going to put my words in his mouth. They're going to come through him organically. It's going to be part of who he is, but the words aren't going to be his. The words are going to be mine, and he's going to write them down, and you are accountable for those words. But the great thing about those words is not only are they going to have significance for their time, they're all going to be looking forward to the ultimate manifestation of my eminence, which is the birth of my son, Jesus Christ, when I send him to be the great expression of that eminence. And so I want to go through some of the prophets and to see what they said, starting with Moses. Uh, prophecy doesn't start with Moses. We have Abraham and, of course, Joseph who had those dreams. Actually, we can take it all the way back to Genesis 3.15 when we talk about seeing things when God says that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. But really, that's where we are sort of in our study. So let's kind of start with Moses. And we've already talked about Moses as the prophet, the one, again, not predicting the future as much, but in being the one that God speaks through, the one who says this is what God said. The first five books of the Bible are credited to the prophet Moses. Right at the end of Deuteronomy... In the um, 34th chapter, this is what it says. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Now, right there, we get sort of a hint, don't we, that the prophet, the one that all of this is about, the one that God is really pointing to is going to be different than the prophets in between to the degree in the sense that Moses used to sit down and talk anthropomorphically with God face to face. Well, not so with Jesus because he is God, okay? He's going to be face to face with God. Moses worked amazing miracles and Jesus worked amazing miracles. So even though there were miracles in between, not like the prophet who was to come. So the prophets that are going to be in the interim are, they're great prophets, don't get me wrong, but they're not like Moses and they're not like the one they point to, which is Jesus. Well, probably the first great messianic prophet, and I'll switch back and forth in between messianic and prophet, you know, because basically it's the same thing, same person. But the, the, the first great prophet who told us about the prophet was David, the king. And you also know that David was not just the prophet, but he was also a type of the king and the kingdom that Jesus would bring. But he also told us so much about the Lord that would be his Lord. Reading from the second psalm, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. David is telling us about the kingdom of heaven that is going to come to earth. And he says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. By the way, the second psalm and the 110th psalm, both of which I'm going to quote from for David, are not formally designated as a psalm of David. However, once again, the scholars I really uh, appreciate and trust, like John Calvin, are adamant that these are psalms of David, so that's good enough for me. We'll use them as David telling us about the prophet to come. He also knew that that prophet would be his Lord from the 110th Psalm. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David knew that when that prophet came, like all prophets before him, he would be rejected by the religious leaders. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. We read that earlier in our uh, 
on call to worship. And just like Peter made clear in his Pentecost sermon, David recognized that this Lord, this was the Lord's doing. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. David also knew that not only would the prophet be the prophet, he would also be the priest and the king, the king of kings. When he said in the 110th Psalm, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek being the prince of Salem. So David started this out, but probably the greatest of all the prophets as far as telling us about the prophet. And we simply love to read his words, especially at this time of year, is the prophet Isaiah who wrote this in his ninth chapter. For uh, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forward and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. There's the word, canna, zeal, the zealousness of a God who passionately loves us. The zeal of the Lord of hosts. We'll do this. Isaiah even pinpointed the exact family. He's already talked about David. But just so we know, he's not talking about any David. He says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge. And the fear of the Lord. The prophets telling us about the prophet and what he would be like. Isaiah was unique virtually in the way that he presented the prophet as a suffering servant. It wasn't anything unusual for a prophet to be a sufferer because they beat them all up. And Hebrews 11 tells us that. But to be a king. To be the king of kings, to be the Messiah, and to be despised by men. That was something that even the disciples couldn't put together from the 53rd chapter. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Isaiah also saw that the prophet would not just fulfill the office of revelation, but also the office of the priest where sacrifices would be made and atonement would be made for sins once and for all. When he wrote, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death. And was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many. And makes intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah saw brilliantly the coming of the prophet, but so did the other so-called major prophets. Jeremiah, Jeremiah not only saw the redemption, but he saw the imputed righteousness that through the prophet, those who followed him would be made righteous. 
He writes in the 23rd chapter, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Notice the similarity of the language. I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called The Lord is our righteousness. Not just his righteousness, but his righteousness will be our righteousness. Jeremiah saw, perhaps as well as anyone did, the covenantal expansion that was going on. God's a covenantal God. And he saw as the new covenant would build upon that covenant in a most powerful and extraordinary way. He wrote, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God. And they shall be my people. Brothers and sisters, that's the language of eminence. I will be their God. No longer shall each one of them teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. Not only did Jeremiah see the glory of the continuation of the covenants, but he also saw the evil that would surround the coming of the prophet and do everything that could be done to try to destroy him. He writes earlier in that same chapter, thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because They are no more. And of course, what he is recounting is the abominable and horrific murder of every child under the age of uh, one and a half or two in the city of Bethlehem as he tried to kill the prophet when he came. Ezekiel also saw these things. He also saw the prophet as the son of David. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. Just as an aside, you need to recognize that David has been dead for over 400 years when Ezekiel writes that. So obviously he's not talking about David's resurrection. He is talking about the prophet as being one out of the house and lineage of David, even as Jesus the Christ was. But not only did he see the prophet coming and reconciling a fallen man to a holy God, he saw peace and shalom being brought to that people as a result. I will make a covenant of peace with them, says the Lord. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will set them in their land and multiply them. I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their guide. And they will be my people. Brothers and sisters, that is the essence of eminence. No longer is there going to be a sanctuary. No longer is there going to be a tent of meeting. No longer is there going to be a temple. God is going to make his abode in your heart. And that's where he's going to stay forever. No one can ever take him out of your heart when he comes and he changes and regenerates that heart. Ezekiel saw the extraordinary reconciliation and peace That would come from God. But not only did he see the transcendence of the prophet. He also saw the eminence. The compassion of that prophet who would be to his people like a shepherd. I will rescue my flock says the Lord. They shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. And I will set up over them one shepherd. My servant David. And he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Once again, David dead for over 400 years. He's talking about the son of David, Jesus the Christ.
Well, I could go on and on out of the uh, major prophets uh, and go into the minor or so-called minor prophets that they all told us so many things about the prophet who would come. Over 400 specific prophecies given and fulfilled about the prophet who would come. I think that that kind of establishes what Calvin said about the prophet or a prophet. Every single one of these prophets are telling us about the one who would come. And the detail isn't amazing. And you all know the statistics. They're absolutely beyond the, pos- the impossibility of mathematics. The number of, of chances it would be that that many prophecies would be fulfilled. Micah looked and saw the very town in which he would be born. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from the ancient of days. Zechariah saw many things about the Messiah. He even saw the kind of animal that he would write in when he symbolically wrote in Jerusalem on the week of his passion to symbolically take charge of his kingdom. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And finally, the very, at least finally for the Old Testament record, the last prophet in the Old Testament, Malachi, not only told us of the incarnation that was going to come, but also told us of the herald who would announce that birth. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Right at the very end of the Old Testament, the, the reminder That even though this is an imminent God, he is holy and wrathful at the sins of those who do not turn to him and seek his righteousness. Well, the very one that Malachi is talking about, he didn't write an Old Testament book, but he is certainly prominently revealed for us in the New Testament, and his name was John the Baptist. We hear about him in Matthew. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The very same thing that Jesus preached. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the Baptist, Jesus said, was the greatest man born of woman. And and I think that the reason he said that is because of his proximity to the greatest man born of woman, who was Jesus the Christ. He was the one who heralded it. But you know something? He didn't just sugarcoat him. He didn't just say that this mild and meek Lord is coming and everything's going to be good and he's all love and there's no transcendent holiness in him. In fact, quite to the contrary. When the Jews sent out the Sadducees and Pharisees to check out John the Baptist, this is what we read him saying, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Where in that do you find the watered-down, weak, impotent Jesus that so many people present him to be? He is the holy God. He is the transcendent God. And the transcendence of God is in no way diminished by his eminence. When Jesus comes, he was still the son of the holy God.
Well, anyway, John the Baptist, at least John's when he tells us of John the Baptist, verifies something for us. He verifies that the prophet that Moses talked about is indeed Jesus the Christ. When the Jews sent out the, the Levites and the priests, they came to John the Baptist and they said, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then are you, Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? They're talking about the prophet that Moses predicted. And he answered, no, I am not the prophet. But the one who comes after me is the prophet. Later on in the sixth chapter, when they tried to make him king, they did so because they perceived he was the prophet and Jesus would have nothing to do with it. Later in the third chapter of Acts, Peter will make it clear that Jesus the Christ was the prophet and they crucified him, not recognizing their time of visitation. John understood the transcendence of Christ. I baptize with water, he said, but among you stands one who you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. But John also saw, brothers and sisters, the eminence of Christ. For on the very next day, he stood before him, and John took one look at him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that, brothers and sisters, I believe, explains and illustrates what God is saying through Moses. I will raise up for you the prophet, a prophet like you, Moses. And there will be many in between that will talk about the one to come. But the greatest manifestation of my eminence is my son, Jesus Christ, who I send in my name. Now, I want to resist the urge, and it's an easy one, to slip into the nativity here. It is Christmas week. But I want to keep this into its context and its perspective. I want to make sure that we understand and we see this in the, in, in the context of the imminence of God when he comes and the transcendence of God that never changes in the person of Christ, in this incarnation of the way that all of these prophets have been talking about it. Why the incarnation? Why this extravagant discussion? All the way back in Deuteronomy and all over the next 1,400 years, all the way up to Jesus Christ, why did God do that? Well, there's a variety of reasons. First of all is his eternal decree. We've studied that. God has determined from all eternity past, and Peter makes it absolutely clear in his first epistle that that was decided that Jesus would be the Christ long before the earth was created. So we knew that it was grounded in the eternal decree of God. But we also know that it was the fulfillment of the prophecies that God, I'm sorry, not prophecies, but covenants that God had made with his people going all the way back to Abraham and then expanded through Moses and then through David the king, even the covenant that he made with Noah saying, I'll never destroy the earth again this way. I'm going to deal with sin in a different way. Springtime and harvest will be allowed to continue until I Bring the Redeemer, the one who will once and for all handle the problem of sinfulness altogether. It was the fulfillment of God's covenants because God is a covenantal God. But brothers and sisters, the primary reason for the prophet is not just to tell you more about God, not just to be the radiance of his glory, but it is grounded like everything else in the holiness of God. The words that God is sending through his prophets are holy words. The son that he sends is a holy son. But he comes because it was necessary. Because of God's transcendent holiness. Because he cannot bear to look upon iniquity. And our sins condemn us before him. And yet his awesome love drives his eminence so that he can have relationship with us. So that he can have communion with us. And so he sends his son. The reason he sent his son is because he loves his humanity with such a burning love. A zealousness that 
that is perfect and infinite, but a jealousness that is perfect and infinite. And if you think, my dear friend, that there is any way that you can stand before that God with the sinfulness of your life and what you have done in your thoughts, word, and deed, omission, and commission, covered with the sins of a lifetime of sins against God, you are completely Uh, fooling yourself because you cannot stand in the presence of that holy God. Pull yourself out of the sewer that you live in and stop comparing yourself to the other sewer rats. Begin to compare your righteousness with the perfect holiness of God because Jesus says that's the righteousness that is required for you to stand in his presence. And so therefore, it's the holiness of God, the transcendence of God, the majesty of God that absolutely necessitates the prophet because it was only God, only he could pay the penalty of the sins against an eternal God. And so out of the extraordinary, unbelievable, uncomprehensible love, God sends his son. And that, brothers and sisters, is really the motivation behind it all. We talked about it last week. We cannot comprehend the degree of the love of holiness that would send his own son so that he might die on a cross with our sins upon him so that those sins might be forgiven and all who believe in his name will be saved. That love is beyond anything that we can absolutely begin to comprehend for God so Love the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's the reason for the prophet, folks. That's the reason for the extravagant redemption. That's the reason that it's important that we know what he says because Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is an absolutely exclusive path to salvation. You can't do it on your own. Your righteousness will never stand before God. And it doesn't matter how faithful or or trusting you are in another God or some kind of of aberration of the true God. And God can't save you because the only one who can save you is Jesus the Christ. And that is the reason that the prophet came. There's just one last thought that I want to leave you with. And that going back to our text. God says, okay, you're scared to death of me. You don't want to hear from me. I get it. And that's good. But I'm going to put my words in the mouths of my prophets. And they're going to write them down. And you'd best listen to those words because they're my words. They're the words of holiness. They're the words of life, but they're the words of holiness. So therefore, I ask you to listen to the words of the prophet because they're just like the words I spoke at Mount Sinai. Brothers and sisters, do you realize something? That when you open this book, You're standing at the base of the mountain of Mount Sinai and God speaks to you from on high because these are his words. And it floors me to think that so many Christians don't even open the book, never even read it. But these are the words of God. Every time you open this Bible and read it, you're walking up to Mount Sinai and God comes down in power and glory and he speaks to you through the illumination of the Holy Spirit and calls you by name and says, hear my words. These are the words of life. So I leave you with words that we studied just recently at the end of the gospel part of John's gospel when he said these are written and he means his gospel and I mean this book but it applies both sides. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the way that you continue to reveal yourself to us through your word. We're thankful for the prophets of old that you spoke through. But more than anything else, we are thankful for the prophet. All the way back then in the time of Moses, 1,400 years before he came, you mapped it out. And you told us the way the next 400 years was going to be. You're going to speak through these men. 
and, and they're going to be beaten and, and ignored and cut in half and crucified. And, and, and they're going to be treated like the scum of the earth. But they're not. They're your men. They're the ones that you have spoken through. And the words are in no way diminished by the delivery mechanism, by the vehicle who delivers them. They're still your words. They are the authoritative, holy words of God. Thank you that you've given us this word. And thank you if you've given us a desire to study it and know it. We give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.